0: Well, good evening, my name is Ben Miller, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're moving right along through this worship service. But that's not because it's Super Bowl Sunday, it just happened to work out that way. Um, but uh, we are obviously looking at the Gospel of John this, uh, this winter, uh, we've come to um, right around the, the, the middle of, of, uh, of the Gospel, John uh, chapter 8, and um, in, the, in the Gospel of John there are, there are seven statements um, where Jesus says, I am. I am this, that, and the other. So he says uh, in chapter six, verse thirty-five, I am the bread of life. In chapter eight, verse twelve, today's passage, he says, I am the light of the world. In chapter ten, verse seven, I am the door. In chapter ten, verse eleven, I am the good shepherd. In chapter eleven, verse twenty-four, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter fourteen, verse six, I am the way. The truth and the life. And then chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. And if you know your Old Testament, uh, you know that when Moses is talking to God and Moses says, who are you? God says out of the burning bush, I am. That is my name. I am. I am who I am. And that is an assertion of God's, uh, obviously, his, uh, his reality, just his absolute fundamental reality, that nothing really uh, can in any way support his reality. He doesn't need any proofs for his reality. He simply is that which is. And it's actually the the same reason that Jesus here, when they're questioning him about, he needs another witness. uh, Because in Jewish law, you needed two witnesses. You couldn't just testify about yourself in court. So you always need another witness. But Jesus is saying here, um, I am. I am the same one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. I don't need anyone to testify about me. I can testify by myself because I simply am true. I am am reality. I am ultimate reality. And and in the Gospel of John, there are seven of these because seven was the perfect number in Hebrew. So the the author, John, wants everyone to know very clearly that that Jesus is the same one who spoke to Moses out of the bush. He is God. He is Yahweh. I am who I am.
1: Now this time, in particular, it's
0: I am the light of the world. So I want to look at that idea of what does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Um, I think he's saying, I reveal everything. I, I illumine everything. And in the same way that light makes things grow, uh, my presence brings forth a life. In the same way that sunlight makes um, a plant, like a daisy, to grow, you, you need Jesus' light to grow and to have life yourself. And that's why you have that phrase in verse 12, verse um, 12. Anyone who follows me will have the, the light of life. And we've, we saw that earlier in the Gospel of John, um, that, uh, he, that his light is the life of all men. So life and light are connected here. And um, one commentary, a guy named Lightfoot, J.B. Lightfoot, says that uh, Jesus... And Jesus only irradiates human existence with the knowledge of its nature, meaning, and purpose. And that's why, uh, you, that's why his light shining in your life creates abundant life. Because uh, if he irradiates human existence with its knowledge and its purpose and its meaning, then until you really know that stuff, you're not going to be fully alive. Uh, the truth will not set you free. You're going to be confined You're not going to be free. You're not going to know why you exist. You're not going to know who you are. Your life is going to be small and constricted and narrow. And so the idea that I want to talk about is that Jesus is light, and therefore he also produces life. That without him, we don't know who we are. We don't know what the cosmos is. We don't know who God is, and so we wither. But with him, with Christ, the light of the world we begin to see who we are we begin to understand what kind of world we live in and know who our creator is and so therefore you begin to come alive and i can say that as a former atheist that this this happened to me very much i i was fascinated by uh, philosophy and uh, by um, by cosmology by by science trying to figure out the world uh, so um, desperately through my own intellect and my own research. And uh, trying to read as much as possible to figure out the world and who I am. And I could not do it. And it was, it was very exhausting. And so until I, uh, I felt like a light came upon me, you know, my little attempts with my little flashlight to search for everything did not, did not produce the life that I, that I wanted. But then with the revelation, uh, which is a gift from God that, that anyone can receive at any time and ask for, with that revelation of the light of Christ, um, I felt like I... Um, I was set free, and my life became a much bigger life, which is always threatened, by the way, to return back to the the shackles of of the old way of not having true life. So I want to look at light first, and then I want to look at the way that that light, the light of the world produces life, that uh, the life of human beings comes from the light of Christ. So you've got to understand the context to really get what's going on here in this passage. And it really makes it come alive when you know what's going on here. Um, It is the Feast of the Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, or sometimes called, I think the best way to describe it is the Feast of Tents. So every year, I believe it was in the fall, God's people would come together and they would have this week-long, fantastic feast. Kind of pilgrimage, vacation, where all the families would come from all over Judea, and even from outside of, of Judea. Um, some probably came from, the, uh, from Turkey, perhaps even as far as Rome, uh, down into Arabia, Syria, maybe even in Egypt. There were Jews living all around the Roman world. They would all come to Jerusalem. This was probably the second biggest uh, feast of the year after only Passover. And they would kind of act out their liberation. Uh, from from Egypt in slavery, and if you've ever seen civil war, uh, these civil war re- reenactments, they don't happen as much anymore. They used to happen uh, on Davis Field at Wake Forest every year. All these guys would show up dressed up as Confederate soldiers and Union soldiers, and they would they would act out of the Battle of Bull Run right there near the Scales Fine Arts Center. So that doesn't happen anymore. But um, that is somewhat like what Israel is doing with the Feast of the Tents. And one of the greatest parts of the feast of the tents was the, the, after the first night. Because um, at the end of the first day, in the temple treasury, which is where Jesus is teaching here, we saw that, we see that later on, that he's, uh, he is in the temple treasury in verse 20. So in the temple treasury, they would have these gigantic uh, candlesticks set up that I imagine were about as tall as this stage. Really, really tall, wide candlesticks. Um, and on top would be a huge bowl. And these, uh, these guys would climb up ladders to be able to pour that amount of oil into the bowls that were at the top of these candlesticks. And then they would light them and um, it would show the people that when they were in the wilderness camping out in these tents, they had to have these, uh, this miraculous fire, this miraculous light that uh, led them through the desert. They didn't, like in the desert, they wouldn't have been able to see their hand in front of their face at night. They wouldn't have known which direction to go. If you're in the desert, you have no idea where to go. So the pillar, it was called a pillar of fire, like a great moving candlestick. And it would move around, so the story goes, through the desert, and Israel would follow it wherever it went. And so they are celebrating this in the temple treasury with these four gigantic candlesticks. And uh, it was so intense, the light, um, that one... um, One book called the Mishnah said that there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the candlesticks. So you can imagine the excitement of children as their parents would all bring them to the lighting of the candlesticks, the festival of lights. It would have been better than Tanglewood. It would have been better than any of those light celebrations you see because you would have felt the heat. There were real candles. There was oil in them. And at some point they would light them all and I imagine that it was about that time, we don't know for sure, but I, I like to imagine that, that after they were, they were lit, maybe towards the end of the evening, um, Jesus kind of hijacked the ceremony. Kind of like those guys that run into the, the middle of a football field during a game and you know, they make some protest. I think he came running out uh, right, after, right at the end of the, the festival of lights, the, the first night of the Feast of Booths, and, and he says, I am the light of the world. These 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 four candlesticks. There, I am I am that person, and was probably um, I don't know arrested. Maybe maybe they, maybe they took him away at some point to interrogate him, at where this dialogue comes in, because uh, they were, they were obviously very upset about that. What he's claiming is that he was the pillar of fire, that literally that thing that moved around in the wilderness was was a manifestation of him before he actually came as a human, God's presence on earth. The source of all illumination and guidance. And the, the really crazy thing about that statement is that I am the light of the whole world. Not just a light in one particular culture, but uh, the capital T light, capital L of the entire world. I am the light of the world. It's an amazingly comprehensive and some, someone might say an arrogant statement. Uh, because he's not saying I am a light. Uh, like I'm not a great teacher. One of the great lights uh, I'm not just someone like Socrates or, or the Buddha or Muhammad. These, these human beings that were great teachers that taught a, a great deal of wisdom. He's, he's not saying that he is a great teacher. He's saying, I am what the teachers talk about. I am the one that they speak of. I am light. I am not just a teacher of the light. And I think this makes uh, Jesus very unique among all great moral teachers. There have been many many great moral teachers, spiritual teachers. I, I didn't even, I just named three of them, but uh, there are so many who have taught great truths. You can find great truth about God and humans, uh, great truths about the world we live in from uh, sources all over the whole world. And I encourage you to read those. Uh, some of you you know, know a lot more than I do about these uh, kind of Eastern spiritual writings. Uh, lots of truth in those things. But what makes Jesus so unique is that um, he did not come primarily um, to teach something. He wasn't there just to teach all these great truths, uh, this great way of living or these important moral principles. Now, he did some of that, especially the Sermon on the Mount, but, but that's not why he came. He did not come to teach a bunch of things, to rival the other teachers. No, he came and said, I am the light of the world. I am the truth. I am the truth. I am what the other teachers catch glimpses of. So so they might say things like, um, they will say, enlightenment comes when you realize that you are a, a soul that is immortal, trapped in this world of senses and shadows. That's what Socrates might have said. And so he would say, enlightenment comes when you realize that. Or, enlightenment comes when you realize that all your desires that you have are what really create the suffering in your life, and that you should empty yourself of all desire. That would have been Kind of what the Buddha would have taught. Or enlightenment comes when you realize that, that God is one. There's only one God and, and everything else is just an idol. And um, that's what kind of like what Muhammad would have taught. And there's truth in all those things. But Jesus says, no, enlightenment comes simply when you come into me. And when I come into you. So it's, it's different. It's very different. It's not entirely contradictory to them all, but it's a fulfillment of them all. It's a, it's a greater revelation than them all. And, and also it implies that all the other things we, we learn do not have sufficient light to be the light of the world. That there's a, there's a need. That in some senses you have to renounce uh, your former learning, as I feel like I did. Um, you have to kind of at least put it on pause and say, I don't really know what I thought I knew. And I'm kind of walking in darkness here until you come and fully illumine me. And then you can turn the pause off and kind of go back and look at the things you once knew. But you've got to let it come in and crash upon you in in a different way from the other things that you learn, Because you're not going about and searching, in this case, with with Christ. He is coming and just flooding you with light. I am the light of the world. So it is kind of an insult to human wisdom. And Isaiah says as much, the prophet Isaiah said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Um, On people walking in the shadow of death, the light has shined. So it's, um, it's kind of like the Israelites without the pillar of fire. They would have been uh, unable to, to really see anything in the camp. They wouldn't have known which direction to turn. It would have been desert in every direction. And Isaiah is kind of saying that about us, and so is Jesus, that uh, apart from Christ, we are in that same position. We don't really know who we are. We don't know what life is really like. We have guesses. We have um, really good... Um, you know, educated guesses and, and attempts to, to explain what meaning of life is, but, um, but we, do, we don't really get it. You know, people still sit around the water cooler and discuss the, the meaning of life. It's, um, you know, if you imagine a group of hammers that are sitting around discussing the meaning of life, a bunch of hammers, and they're probably, look, they, imagine them looking at each other and wondering why they exist. I think it would, it would not take them long to realize, uh, it has something to do with driving in nails. You know, we have this very flat head, and so we seem to be created for that purpose—to drive in a nail. But humans sit around and discuss such things, and we don't really know. And I mentioned the hammers because it just shows how strange it is that we don't know. Why? Why is that that we don't know? Wouldn't you think that we would know something like that? Why? Why are we um, unsure of? of why we exist and what the meaning of life is and who we are and who God is and what kind of world we live in. And this is 300 years since the Enlightenment, the so-called Enlightenment, which is a, um, I, I believe it's, a, it's an arrogant statement of this time period in human history where, um, you know, because of Descartes, uh, Locke, Hume, Kant, all these great philosophers, Newton, uh, we feel like that was the time where Enlightenment came and the, the Dark Ages The Middle Ages, they realized that they were completely wrong about everything. And we threw aside religion and we threw aside revelation and we realized how we could do it on our own, how smart we were. Uh, We invented science, you know, so the story goes. But after all of that supposed enlightenment, now we're kind of left at a time where um, we kind of live for entertainment, at least in our culture. In post, you know, in the enlightenment, in, in, in cultures where they've experienced the enlightenment, uh, to a large extent now, we have kind of given up on the quest for the meaning of life, and we kind of fall back to distraction and entertainment. So that uh, five hours a day are spent by the average Western uh, Westerner, human, uh, especially Americans, five, five or so hours on our phones, 90 minutes on social media, an hour or so on video games. And, and we feel like we've gone through the Enlightenment to find out these things. The great novelist Walker Percy wrote a book called Lost in the Cosmos, the last self-help book. I've quoted this before. I love this book. And he says, we live in a deranged age. More deranged than usual because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. And so that's, in light of that, I am the light of the world is even more powerful and has uh, even more um, to say about what we are for, why we are here, what we're like. Most people know what they're doing that day. I can just um, pick up my phone and flip my calendar app on, and it says these are the things that I'm doing that that day. But if you ask me, uh, why are you here today? you know That takes me a while to even begin to think about that question. As, and, and almost like as if that were irrelevant. You know, people, if, if you ask somebody, well, why, what are you doing today? I'm doing this, that, and the other. Now, why are you here? You know, why were you born? They'd be like, that, that's a stupid question. That doesn't make any sense. But clearly, that's the more important of the two questions. What are you doing here? And one thing I admire about, um, about ants is I admire that ants seem to know the answer to that question very well. They, they, have, uh, they have a very clear direction. Or a woodpecker... Uh, they don't seem to be walking in darkness. They just know what their purpose is, and they do that. And yet, um, you know, we are the most uh, highly developed animal in the world, in the whole universe, as far as we know. We're Homo sapien, which means wise man. Um, but but the animals don't wonder that, that the animals don't wonder that maybe life is about making money and um, getting wealthy or achieving fame or. The animals don't seem to have um, you know, these, these delusions that finding true love or creating a happy family is what life is about. And yet we uh, humans, as intelligent as we think we are, uh, don't seem to know the meaning of life. We are without light. As Jesus puts it, uh, you judge according to the flesh. But I think that's, that's, a great, that's a great line you should use next time someone says something stupid. Uh, you judge according to the flesh. It basically means that your, your judgment on these things is from a very small, uh, very narrow, confined perspective. Someone might say parochial or naive. Um, you judge according to the flesh. You, you're not seeing the big picture. So if somebody said, like, the Eagles are going to win tonight, then my, the response will be you judge according to the flesh. <laughs> you see not what Las Vegas is saying. Um, or, you know, if someone says you can do anything you set your mind to, That would be another good time to say, uh, you judge according to the flesh. You know not what you say." Or um, as this um, famous uh, kind of philosopher, Douglas Rushkoff, said, he said the whole world right now is in the middle of a new renaissance centered on technology and self-expression. And I would say to him, you judge according to the flesh, that such things are not true. That progress, the idea that we're uh, in a time of great progress, uh, is a judgment according to the flesh. There are a lot of benefits. There are things like phones and iPads, and especially with medicine and food, there there is great um, wisdom. There 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 are great benefits. But as far as figuring out what we're here for, and what human life is about, and what what uh, what happens after death, all these kind of questions, who God is, I don't think we know. I think we know less, perhaps, than 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 we did in the past. And so coming into the light is realizing that, uh, it's often realizing you, how, how darkened your life is. When you come into the light, you realize that you were um, in a lot of darkness, that you were walking in darkness. It's kind of like striking a match in a gigantic cavernous room. And when you strike the match, you realize that there's so much around you you don't understand. So being a Christian doesn't mean you know everything. Uh, it, it means you realize you know how little you know. And but you know the one who is light. It's kind of like sobriety. You know a person is becoming sober who's an alcoholic when they begin to realize that they were an alcoholic, that they were addicted, that they have a problem. Or think about a psychotic break. Um, The way you know a person who is psychotic has come back to reality. You know, dear friend of mine went through a manic phase, and the way that I knew that he was coming back to reality is when he realized that he was crazy. And, uh, you know, when the person says, I guess I'm not the president of the U.S. after all, that's when you realize that they're beginning to have light come in. Or I guess there isn't a demon perched on my shoulder. You know, that kind of thing. That's when you realize they're getting healthy now. And the same is true spiritually. It's when you begin to realize how things, how darkened things were that you're actually became, becoming sober-minded and becoming uh, sane. Which means that it's hard it's hard to come into the light because the light is painfully strong and uh, you have to realize a lot of hard things about yourself. It's kind of like going to counseling. It's really, really hard to do that because you know that things are going to be revealed about yourself that you don't want revealed. As one great uh, psychiatrist, M. Scott Peck, says uh, when he describes the light, it's uh, a light of goodness that shows us, up, a, a light of scrutiny that exposes us, a light of truth that perpe- uh that Penetrates our deceptions. Uh, the light is is painful, but it's the only thing that brings life. It's the only thing that brings life. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse twelve: Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light that produces life. And that's what I want to talk about now: is life. Because if I believe a bunch of lies. I shouldn't say if, I should say when I believe the lies about who I am and the universe I live in uh, and my creator or not. When I start believing lies, then my life begins to wither and get small. Kind of like putting that daisy down in the basement. And it'll still stay alive for a little while, but it, you know it begins to wilt. And it doesn't thrive, it doesn't grow. But if I live by the light of truth, uh, says Jesus, then I will actually have life and life to the full, life to the fullest. He says, "I I came to give them life and life to the fullest." John ten ten, and that life comes about from this revelation of our meaning, our purpose, our value, our belovedness. You've got to live. You've got to run on the truth. You know that you've got to be running on truth to flourish. If I, um, you know, if I was to regularly clean my van, and change the oil, and rotate the tires, and, and drive her around very slowly and carefully, uh, go to the car wash lot, then the, then that my van is going to have life to the full. But if I try to, uh, you know, like go 90 miles an hour, or go, you know, hairpin turns, or just accelerate, you know, zero to 60 in two seconds. Then, uh, then that precious van will no longer have the fullness of life, and we'll be walking in darkness because that's not why, uh, that's not how that van was made. That's not, that's not obeying the instruction manual. That's, um, that's, that's running on lies. And a lot of times, a lot of times we try to run on lies. We we try to do that kind of thing, either vastly overestimating ourselves, as in the case of that van. Or, or taking like the, the most amazing Ferrari, Maserati, um, Lamborghini, and just driving it around like I drive my van. You know, That would be, that would be terrible to, to just waste all the potential of that amazing thing. But life comes when you reject the lies about who you are and what the world's like and what God is like. So uh, lies are things like, if he breaks up with me, people will think I'm a fool. That's a lie. And that's a lie that a lot of people believe. I've believed that at times. If I get get more and more um, money in my job, or if I get more and more success, if I get that promotion, or if I get better grades, then all these nightmares I have about failure are going to come to an end. If I can just get to that place, the nightmares will go away. Actually, they can get stronger. They can get stronger. Or if I ever confront my dad or my mom, or really anybody, they're going to hate me forever. Because when I tried that once, it went terribly. That's a kind of a lie. And when you believe the lies, uh, it's the opposite of the truth setting you free. If truth sets you free, then lies lies uh, enslave you. And they bind you. And they keep you from being able to do things that you're made to do. Someone once told me fairly recently, when I think about my life and how little I've accomplished, I feel like it's pointless. And I have no reason to keep on living. And, um... I had to just say to them, that is a lie. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you believe that lie, you will wither and die. Um, Because this whole contest for the truth in your life is that important. It's a a matter of life or death. What is true? Uh, There's a a list of cognitive distortions from TherapistAid.com. These are really helpful. I love cognitive distortions. Um, this I don't love them the way they affect me. I love the idea of them, and I think it's very important to read about them. Uh, cognitive just means cognition, so you're thinking all the time. And the idea of a cognitive distortion is that you like you know the straight line of truth comes in and just it's distorted, it gets bent this way or that. And the human uh, the human mind is incredibly good at distorting things. It's amazingly good at distorting things. So here's some of them. I think they're worth reading. Um, magnification and minimization exaggerating or minimizing important events my work at the hospital really doesn't help anyone that's minimization I've heard people say that before my temper has destroyed my children that is magnification we, we believe these things we, we say these things to ourselves catastrophizing Seeing, the o- seeing only the worst possible outcome of a situation. Wake Forest lost to Clemson, and the program is in shambles. I think I said that yesterday. The program, the, we, uh, we are in a seven-year slide. You know, something like that that is just catastrophizing. You're making a catastrophe of, of a little point of data that you then extrapolate way too much. Overgeneralization, making broad interpretations from a single event, or maybe a few events. So, for instance, I felt awkward during my job interview. I am always so awkward. That's an example of overgeneralizing. And we're doing this all the time with our thinking. You have to really watch your thinking, because lies, these lies, distort your life, and they take away life. They bind you. Mind reading. uh, Interpreting the thoughts and beliefs of others with inadequate evidence. She wouldn't go on a date with me. She probably thinks I'm ugly. Um, of course that's just one of many and we do this all the time uh, I, at the party I could tell that he thought I was an idiot because he turned away from me when I made eye contact with him <laughs> tiny little tiny point of data that we then like explode with his mind reading fortune telling the expectation that a situation will turn out badly without adequate evidence there are 50 people here tonight the church is dying that kind of thing um Disqualifying the positive. Recognizing only the negative aspects of a situation. I forgot to talk about the cross chart today in class. Discovering Salem was terrible. So I disqualify all the positive things. I've made this one mistake, and so the whole thing just becomes dark. Um, And then finally, and there are a lot more of these, but this is my last one. All or nothing thinking. So you think in terms of absolutes. I never do a good job on anything. Um, it's either it's all good or it's all bad. It's very hard for this kind of like 70 30 thing or, or 60 40. And I, I mention all those because if you come into the light and stop believing those lies, you can experience life in a much fuller degree. And there is a way to that, there's a path that direction. So don't, don't just say, I can't, I can't do it. That's, uh, that's giving up too easily. That's not being courageous. You, you can have the courage to fight these lies. and because the light and the world is here. The light of the world is here. And so in, in, in conjunction with perhaps a therapist or a counselor or just a good friend that you meet with regularly and talk about these ways you deceive yourself all the time, it, it, it hurts our relationship so much, especially with God, with ourselves, with other people. And uh, it frees us from the shackles of a very small and cramped and self-enclosed life. Uh, Verse 31 again, if you abide in my word and my revelation, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in the truth, the the truth will set you free from a small and uh, bound life, a life of bondage. Uh, From futility and despair, from meaninglessness that comes from not... Walking in the light from loneliness and lovelessness and cynicism and suspicion and paranoia. I mentioned entertainment and distraction earlier. I think it's one of the great kind of master lies of our time. Um, that life, our lives become dominated by these really small concerns. I mean, one could be the football game tonight. It's amazing. There have probably been shows that have come on 6 in the morning till right now. And there have been men drinking beer and watching those shows. About a game with a little... You know, crazy football that you're just throwing around. And people have created this reality around that that's massive. And uh, and video games and YouTube and um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Netflix, emails, texts. I mean, again, I, I, I always harp on this because I feel like these screens uh, are just causing uh, a magnification of lies. There were two times this weekend where... I, I took my giant Hydro Flask, which I've got a big one, and um, I banged it against these bleachers like three times, really, really hard. Everyone around me uh, could hear it, and some, some of them looked my way, and my poor children and wife, um, because, I, and here's why, I was so mad about my children's basketball game. <laughs> That's amazing that, that uh, this kind of master lie about sports, and I mean, one of these games is like a hoops for him, uh, Christian Basketball League for 13-year-old boys. I was like, Jesus, that coach. What the hell is he? I mean, I was cursing. (laughs) Now that I said that, if that person's listening, I (laughs) realize that he's going to figure out what I was thinking. But, Jesus doesn't just tell us how to live, uh, he actually shows us through his own life, through the Gospels, um, the way a human being actually should live. So he he does teach us a certain amount, he tells us all these things about how we should live, but mostly the gospels are there, they are a treasury of life. Read the gospels not just to learn like little lessons um, that you take home. Like, here's my take-home application from the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Always be kind to the poor or to your enemy. Um, that's not the way to read the Gospels. The way to read the Gospels is here is a life that is really alive. Here, and, I, and I read these things to catch this portrait of a man that I want to be like. A human being that I want to be like. Uh, a man who is uh, whose mind is saturated in Scripture. I mean, he quoted Scripture uh, like it was a, like on the top of his head. Just he always thought about scripture. He always lived in the reality. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a human being who was gently admonishing and correcting people. In such uh, winsome ways. And he, uh, he was chaste. Uh, he was not dominated by lust. He was wise. He was witty. He was innocent. He was shrewd. I read the gospels to, to, to catch this portrait of a man who loved his enemies. Uh, who, who reconciled. Uh, people to each other, who was always trying to reconcile people to each other. He was a peacemaker. Uh, he always was showing hospitality. He was always welcoming in people. He was going to parties with people that no one else who was good and religious would go to. And he was having people into his own parties that nobody who was good or religious would ever have into their parties. He was a man of incredible hospitality. He fed people. He healed people. He noticed people. He, it often says he noticed them. He looked at them. He encourage people. He told stories. He, uh, he had a lot of stories on hand that he could just whip out at, at a moment's notice. He must have been thinking in stories all the time. He loved stories. He, he, went, uh, he, he one, one commentary said he was either at a feast, leaving a feast, or going to a feast. So he loved to eat. He loved to drink. Um, he would go off alone all day long and uh, he would just fast and pray all day long, all night long. He loved to worship. He would go on all these pilgrimages. He loved to be with his friends and worship and live in close community. He was willing to be persecuted. Uh, He was willing to suffer patiently. And he was unimpressed by other people's opinions. And I mention all that stuff just to say the light of the world is primarily this human life that is beautiful. And lovely and full and rich. And, And we read the Gospels to see that's what I want to be like. I want to be like him in in all these different ways. This is how to be a human being. This is what a full human being looks like. So there's that. But there's one other thing I want to talk about, which is that the greatest cognitive distortion of all, that the light of the world came to to totally obliterate, The, the great lie that was planted in the human heart in the Garden of Eden by the snake, by the serpent, is that God does not love me or notice me or care for me. And so when the light of the world shone on the world, the main thing he showed was that God loves human beings. That God loves human beings so much that he came to be with us and to suffer with us. Now that's not on therapista.com, but I think that's the main cognitive distortion of all, is that, is that God does not love us. And when the light came into the world, it was to show us That that God loves human beings who are sinful, who hate him, um, who judge him. John 1.5, John 1.5 says, The light came into the world and the darkness did not overcome it. Other translations are master it, overpower it, overtake it, put it out, or extinguish it. When the light came into the world, human beings tried to extinguish the light, and yet the light just kept shining in love. Um, The great philosopher Plato said that, that we live in a world... Uh, a, a cave of shadows and that in this half lit cave of shadows every human being is not really kind of dimly like can barely see what's going on out there and, and he, he told this parable that it, some, some human being got outside of the cave saw the real world with the sunlight and everything like that and was so excited that the human being ran back into the cave and he told all the people in the cave, the cave dwellers this, I found out what the world is like this is what the world is like it's amazing you should come, you know, you should come see it And and guess what they do to the person who who tells them about the light? They kill him. They hate him for telling them these things. Because they love the shadows. It's amazing that Plato said that hundreds of years before Christ came, and yet it's exactly what happened when the light came. When the light came, the darkness tried to extinguish it. And you see that with these Pharisees telling telling him that his testimony is not true. Verse 13, after seeing all these miraculous signs... And all this amazing teaching that human leaders, uh, human religious leaders told the light of the world, uh, you, you are false. You are a liar. Uh, the light tried to extinguish, uh, the darkness tried to extinguish the light when it came. And yet Jesus says to them, I do not judge you. That's, that's really an amazing part of this. This, if you read the story, it sounds like Jesus hates these folks that he's talking to. But, but right in the middle of all that, he says, I judge no one. I judge no one. I did not come to judge the world or to condemn the world. I came to save the world. And so he doesn't strike back at them. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't humiliate or embarrass them. I mean, he could have told them, okay, let's have a contest of uh, intelligence. Uh, have you ever heard of the Pythagorean theorem? You know, go ahead and try to define that for me. Or how about the periodic table? You know, try to describe to me... The periodic table or Maxwell's wave equations. Do you know anything about that? He could have completely embarrassed these religious leaders, but instead when they asked him uh, to prove himself to them he just said, "I, I judge no one. I judge no one. John 3.19 says the light came into the world. People loved the darkness more than the light. Their actions were evil and yet to lovers of darkness Jesus did not come to judge us. He came to save us, and um, even as we executed him as a liar and a fraud, um, at that very same moment that we're doing that, he is, he is saving us, because on the night he was betrayed, uh, our Lord Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body.